Hey, here's what I want to do. I, uh, I asked Daniel uh, that on Wednesdays, I want to, as we continue to meet together on Wednesday nights and, and walk through whatever we're walking through, I think it is vital that not only in our, in our time of worship and gathering on Wednesday nights do we uh, worship the Lord through a little bit of song, not only do we certainly fellowship with each other before and after, not only are we always going to look at something that has to do with the uh, apostles' teaching, a.k.a. the Word of God, and, and, and walking that through and applying it to our lives, but it's very clear in Scripture that the church devoted itself to prayer. And so I want to take time uh, before we dive in, moving forward on Wednesday nights, where we just take a few moments to just pray at our tables as the body of Christ. Uh, we live in, in case you have been asleep for the past decade, uh, we live in different times than the majority of what many of you in this room are used to. Uh, we live in times where, frankly, never is there a day or a moment in a day where I open up the news and I go, man, I feel good. It's always, oh goodness, there's even more bad news. And specifically, more bad news as it relates to, uh, to us as believers many a times. Now, not bad news on an eternal scale. There's nothing but good news there. But bad news in terms of things we may quickly be facing. And here's the reality. I have been in enough times and enough places where we will uh, as believers, we'll throw up a whiteboard and we'll strategize. By the way, that's ironic that that's a whiteboard right there. That wasn't placed there for that. Um, don't really know why that's there, actually. But uh, it's left over from my dad, I guess. Um, we'll whiteboard stuff. We'll strategize. How are we going to reach these people? We're going to turn the tide. And church family, here's the reality. I, there's a place and a time for strategizing and, and, and whatnot. But here's the real reality. It's not going to be any of our good and great ideas that see that see healing come to our land. It's going to be revival that happens in the church of God, which goes out in a repentant and humble heart, proclaims the word of God. And then the Holy Spirit ignites an awakening in our communities as we are praying for both wisdom, justice, and favor for our governing leaders, in which case then and only then will we see healing in our land. And uh, ironically, when, when God tells his people, if my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves, will repent, turn from their wicked ways, and pray. All three are involved there. And so uh, really what we're going to do in this time of prayer, I don't know that each week we're going to necessarily have new prayer requests. I want us to hunker down and pray for a couple key things. And uh, certainly these take on emphasis, as we know, and in, in are living in the reality of a midterm election year where uh, decisions will be made, votes will be cast, stuff will happen one way or the other, both in the lead up to it and the fallout from it. Now, I don't intend that to be a political statement, just a reality of how our process of government works in the United States of America. So four things, and here's what I ask you to do, and I'm, I'm going I'm to give us, you know, five or ten minutes to pray at our tables. Uh, pray as you're led. You can pray more than once. You can pray silently. You can pray loud. But someone probably ought to step up as a leader and say, I'll open us in prayer or I'll close us in prayer. Um, and I really just, if you use a table, just want to pick one. You can pick all four, but if you just want to pick one and pray. But here's four things I want us praying as a church family. One, uh, for revival in our church. If it doesn't start with us as the people of God, it's not going elsewhere. 
So I mean, rival in our church, First Baptist Pflugerville, that God would breathe a fresh wind, that there would be a fresh fire, that where we are guilty of sin, we would be humble and repent as individuals, as a congregation, where, where we are in need of fresh wind, that we would be responsive, revival in our hearts, and not just our hearts, but other brother and sister, or other sister churches uh, throughout our community, state, nation, revival in the church, awakening in our community, that God would begin doing, that the Holy Spirit would begin moving and stirring in ways we can't imagine and we can't twist and we can't dictate inside of our community, that there would be an awakening to the need for a Savior, that there would be an awakening as there are open doors for the gospel, that there would be a response in salvation. That, that's two, awakening in community. Three, wisdom, justice, and favor for our leaders. And here's why I emphasize those three things. We want to pray that God would give them wisdom, that God would put around them people who have his wisdom, and that they would be humble to receive his wisdom. We also want to pray that if they were just absolutely refused and they are beyond the point of response to the Lord, that God's justice would play out in their life. And we want to pray for favor, just like we've seen all throughout the Old Testament. God grant favor to his people in the face of leaders who were far more pagan than many of ours today because they didn't give a rip about the God of Israel. And even our leaders today, most of them at least came out of a culture where church was some part of their background. We've yet to have a president yet that hadn't touted what church he was part of growing up. So those things for our leaders, fourth, then healing in our country. I am just perpetually saddened. The damage of sin that plays out in lives, even those who think, man, I get to do what I want, live my truth, the damage and the hurt that is actually there is unfathomable. We are a people and a land in need of great, great, great healing. And there's only one person who can give it. And he's willing. But I think these other things, so all, all four of those things, revival in the church, awakening in our community, wisdom, justice, and favor uh, with, for and with our officials, and healing in our community. So I'm just going to let you go free. Uh, if, if you'll pray around your tables, and then uh, I, will, I will pray to close that time and, and move us into where we're going to go tonight.
Father, you are a God who says what you mean and you mean what you say. Your word is truth. And your word has found the path and means of life. Father, and while there are certain promises in the Old Testament that, that there is a, absolutely a context to, um, it seems, Lord, when you told your people who were called by your name to humble themselves, to turn from their wicked ways, and to pray, and that you would bring healing on their land, uh, God, I, I, I don't know why um, that would not be a promise and a prayer appropriate for any of your people, part of any land, to pray. Lord, I think if that's really who you are and what you desire to do, then the fact that there's not healing coming is not, a, is not reflective of some kind of unfaithfulness or change in you. God, it means somewhere in there, we either lack humility, repentance, and or prayer. God, and I know long in so many churches, we've seen the drift in our society and we've prayed for revival, but sort of leads me to wonder if, if, Part of it is we, we're not really humble. God, forgive us where we think we can do it, where we think we can give you the honored seat and we can perform for you, where our great ideas are going to do the work for you. God, where we think our books are greater than your word and our ways are better than your ways, Lord. Forgive us where, oh Lord, there are areas of idolatry God, help us to see it, and may we respond in humility and repentance. And Lord, we do pray because too often it's too easy to come and gather as a church and not pray. Forgive us. Lord, hear our cries, transform our hearts. Lord, even as we're here tonight, as we open up, as we look at what we're going to look at tonight, Lord, would you breathe life into our hearts. May we see you clearly. May we love you all the greater. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Okay, well, I gave you forewarning last week that tonight would be a little different, and uh, it, that's taken on even more life as I've gone through and, and gone through and discovered all sorts of other stuff we're going we're gonna to add to to look a little more in depth tonight. Uh, but but here's, here's why we're going to do that. Uh, tonight's going to be a little bit more, and if, if it is your first time either watching online or you're here in person, let me just give you forewarning. This will be a little bit more of a history lesson uh, than in some ways than a Bible study, but I think it's critical. And here is, here's why. Uh, Galatians chapter 4, Paul's writing, and he says this, he says, but when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he, the son, might redeem those who were under the law, that, he, that we might receive the adoption as sons and daughters. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And Paul makes this claim that Jesus, who came, who lived the life we failed to live, who died the death we rightly deserve, who's risen in a way that we are unable to do of our own power and certainly lack of righteousness. And he reigns and he is coming back and he offers salvation to those who say, Jesus, I'm trusting you in faith. Save me by your grace. He makes a statement that Jesus came in the fullness of time. And if you really do digging into that statement, it's the idea that it wasn't just at a relatively good time. It was at the exact, perfect, precise time when God intended. 
When, when the circumstances were the exact way that God had prepared and planned and laid out. And yet here's what is remarkable. As we look at the New Testament, Jesus is gonna show up on the scene. And you would think after everything we've looked at in the Old Testament, all the ways the people of God kept messing up and messing up and messing up and messing up and God brings, it, it just in line with his word, Discipline after discipline after discipline after discipline. He sends them off into exile. And then just like in accordance with his word, after 70 years and, and a total empire change, his, his leader Cyrus, that by the way, I, Isaiah prophesied about by name hundreds of years prior, would free them to go back, would give them money to build the temple, that there'd be further returns. All of these things are taking place. And in some of the stuff we'll see tonight, you would think when Jesus shows up, it says, it says that when that when the Magi came to visit him, that all of Jerusalem was, it was the talk of town. It was trending all over Twitter, whatever that looked like in the first century. Yet nobody went. And when Jesus opened his mouth and shared truth, they said, isn't that just Joseph and Mary's boy? In fact, when Jesus goes to, to ascend into heaven, what does it say? That there's about 128 people in the entire world who've believed who he is. In fact, if you really want to go by numbers, Peter will lead more people in his first sermon to Christ than Jesus will ever see respond in his, three, in his 33 years of life. Why is that? Part of why we're going to look at what we're going to look at tonight is, is several fold. One, ultimately, I'm going to bring it back around to strengthen our hearts and, 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 and who God is, is, is my hope. But part of it is you need to understand the things that have gone on in what we call this intertestamental period, uh, which, is, which literally just means the period in between the Testaments. So we, we've walked through the Old Testament. We got through Malachi at the very end of last week, and we said whether you want to go chronologically or whether you want to go in the organizational method, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And then Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John pick up the four Gospels with the beginning of the New Testament. But in between, there's about a 450-year period. What happens in that period? That's what we're going to look at tonight. But I'll give you a hint. Keep your Bibles out and ready because we are going to go somewhere here in a moment. Now, uh, we've got these maps up here. If we go to the first map, uh, which I guess is third slide, try to make it cute, but here's bigger. All right, here's the Babylonian Empire. This is who conquers. Uh, this is who conquers and sacks Judah, takes them off into exile in Babylon. Babylon's going to fall. Uh, Babylon's going to fall in 539 BC. When uh, down here, kingdom of Persia, Cyrus is going to overthrow his ruler. He's going to come to power here, and he's going to march up here, conquer uh, media at the capital, and then he's going to start taking all this over. He's going to march into Babylon, and without a shot, he's going to win. We'll go to the next slide, and thus the Persian Empire. Persian Empire comes to power. This is the Persian Empire, of course. In pop culture, most will know that the Persian Empire is the army that came against Greece in the Battle of Thermopylae and the 300 Greece soldiers who stood in the gap and all of this. This is the, the Persian Empire. I want you to notice, you see them pressing in on Greece. You see them down here. They are now over Egypt. Egypt was independent under when Babylon was around, but now they're all under Persia. It's going to be under per the Persian Empire that Cyrus sends the first wave back. It's going to be under the Persian Empire that Ezra leads a second group back, that Nehemiah leads a, a third group back. And it's going to be in this time, uh, in this time of the Persian 
both uh, the Persian and the Babylonian period, uh, and, and the Babil- it's going to start in the Babylonian captivity, move to the Persian, which is this, um, the, the development of, of what the New Testament calls the synagogue. When they're in captivity, there's not a temple to worship at. They're not able to, to do their sacrifices. What, how, what's going to take place? Well, they develop these houses where the, the, the studiers of the law who are now deeply interested because the whole reason they're in captivity is failure to keep the law are going to come and the scribes are going to develop and they're going to begin teaching in the synagogues and the synagogue is going to become a local place of worship in many ways. This develops uh, under the Persian period. You're going to see the rise as Ezra and Nehemiah come back and they find the people of God there in in, uh, Jerusalem uh, quickly looking like the rest of the world and on the verge of annihilation because here's what's going on in this time as well. And we'll we'll look at this in more depth, but uh, the Greeks and their culture is going to spread even before the Greek empire by means of, you see all these ports right here? These are massive ports run by those who we would call Phoenicians, the great sailors of the Mediterranean. So they're going to be bringing in not just various local cultures, but the whole idea of Hellenistic Greek culture. And Ezra and Nehemiah are going to bring reforms that without which the Jewish people were facing a religious annihilation, they're going to reform. It's going to be in this time that the great synagogue, which is a body of of scribes and interpreters of the law to administer the law, and it's the forerunner of what you and I know from the New Testament as the Sanhedrin. It's going to be in this time that the great synagogue develops. But here's what's going to happen. You can see up here, and I need to plot my resources out better here. By the way, this is a great little deal. Bible Atlas, Holloman Bible Atlas, gives you all sorts of uh, rundown over... um, but not only the maps and pictures, but gives you great little uh, um, spark notes versions of, of a lot of the major history that comes on and what's there. And so I'm going to pull some from it as well. Here's what goes on. Uh, 331 BC, actually earlier than that, uh, you see their, their, their battle in Greece. Uh, Alexander is going to come to the throne at the age of 20. He's tired of dealing with this. So he's going to gather 40,000, an army of 40,000 Uh, And they're going to begin pushing back here. Then they're going to quickly drop down here to Egypt uh, because um, they're going to have Egypt uh, is going to, with their backing, be starting to push back against Persian rule down here. They're going to drop down. They're going to kick the Persians out here and they're going to mow through this area. And in some of these cities, now Tyre fights back. And Tyre fights back and Alexander buries the city to the ground and sells every one of its inhabitants into slavery. Because he's not putting up with it. There's several that do. But many of these cities, including Jerusalem, they just capitulate and go, great. <laughs> they, they basically trade their Persian, uh, their Persian fan gear for their Greek fan gear, and uh, everything's fine. Uh, because, and they're going to sweep in, and then if you'll go to the next slide for me, the next map. Here we go. This is the Greek empire, and Alexander's going to push it far further east. He's going to push it into modern-day Afghanistan and touch up against the Himalayan mountains and India. Uh, and this is under Alexander. This is going to be the empire. And Alexander's, it's going to be fast. It's going to all happen. Here's what's remarkable. He's going to come through and do all of this in a period of 11 years. Oh, that's remarkable. Especially you think back then, your fastest means of transportation, it's not going 30 miles an hour. 
Uh, it's, it'd be under that, because uh, even if you can get up to that, it can't stay there. But he's going to conquer all of this. And, and part of what he's going to do is bring about a process that we would call Hellenism. Hellenism, the process of Hellenization, the idea that there is going to be based on the Greek culture, the Greek philosophy, the Greek ideals, they are going to spread a common language, a common way of thought, a common culture that that some of the other culture that, that the other cultures will integrate theirs into, and you're going to have a unity, a unifying culture. And what it's going to do is it's going to bring common language, and it's, it's going to bring the Koine Greek language, the Greek of the street is going to now be the language of commerce and politics and the New Testament. So some say, ah, I took classical Greek in college. That's great, and that can help you, but the Bible wasn't written in classical Greek of the philosophers. It was written in Koine Greek of the people. Uh, you're going to see things like gymnasiums built where young men are training their body and their minds in these ideas. You're going to see standardized coins that are going to allow larger markets and greater trade. And, and what's going to begin to happen, especially with those who are a little higher up, is they're going to begin to have a picture and an idea of life that to this point's never occurred to them. Everything's been very local, very regional, very, very centered. And all of a sudden, this idea of one big world is going to start to to come out in those times. But if you know anything about Alexander, you know that Alexander dies. He dies at the age of, uh, I believe, 33. Uh, he's going to pass. He has no direct heir. He has no direct heir. Ironically, he will, he will die in Babylon because he gets this far and he wants to keep going, but his men go, uh, we're going to kill you if you keep going. And so he says, okay, great, we'll turn back. And uh, he still dies in Babylon. When he dies with no heir, here's what's going to happen. Let's go to the next map. His empire is going to split into four, four different kingdoms. Now, if, just to point out, there's one up here that's orange, Macedonia. Then we got some purple in here. That's Thrace, uh, or that's the regions. Um, both of these kingdoms are going to quickly get wiped out by these two kingdoms. And these two kingdoms are the key ones. This is the Seleucid kingdom, and this is the Ptolemaic kingdom. Uh, Ptolemy and, uh, uh, is going to be initially the one who comes on. They're going to take out the other two, and it's going to be the two of them. But what happens when the two of them take out the other two? Now you don't have mutual people to ally against. You just have each other to do battle against. And in that battle, I want you to notice what is smack dab right on the edge of everything. Oh, look, Jerusalem and the land of the Holy Land, the land where the Jews have now returned, where, they, where those or those who elect to return, many stayed, but those who elected to return where they are, they're going to be caught in the crossfire of their various battles. Now, here's what you need to understand. Under Persian rule, uh, under Persian rule, obviously you see a continued granting of freedoms. The Jews are back living in their land. They've reconstructed the temple. It's not as glorious as the first, but they've reconstructed it. Worship's taking place the way it's supposed to take in accordance with God's laws. Nehemiah, we've rebuilt the walls, uh, which I did a little more digging on. I told you last week, it seems crazy that the emperor would, would grant them the right to refortify their city. But here's why because the Greeks were, were convincing the Egyptians to attack. And so the Jews refortifying Jerusalem actually helped the Persians out, which shows you how God, again, that idea of Esther, even when God's name is not mentioned, he is always at work. 
And he will take the affairs of human man ruled and and, 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 um, dictated by sin, and he will even use sinful man to ultimately open doors and accomplish purposes. And so here they are. But what starts to change under, under Ptolemy... The, the Ptolemy Empire, you can tell, they're down here. They've got a pretty good... Anybody, anybody ever play Risk? Wow, that's more hands than I expected. And this is totally off the top of my head. But, so I love the game of Risk, and everyone's like, you stink. No one wants to play Risk. Uh, but except for like the handful of hands, right? Well, there's a thing in Risk. Like you always, in Risk, if, you've, if you're familiar with the map, you want either South America or Australia, especially Australia. Why? Because on the map, there's only one way in and out. It's easy to defend and build a base to go on. Well, that's, that's what these guys have. They're all pretty localized. They've got, there's not, you know, here's the desert. They don't have people coming after them all these ways. These guys, the Seleucids, they got all sorts of mess. So the Ptolemy Empire, well, all that to say is they're going to they're gonna establish a new Greek major city, the city of Alexandria, which if you know the, the wonders of the ancient world, the library of Alexandria, all of that was part of the, the Hellenization and the process of establishing that. But what they're going to do, they're going to rule uh, from a very centralized government that's going to levy harsh taxes, that land is going to, all the land that you farm is going to be under state control. Certain industries are under state monopolies. They're going to control commerce and finance and agriculture. They're going to have a complex bureaucracy with all the money going to the king. That's, that's, that describes the kind of social economic life that if you are a Jew living in this time that you're under. It's hard. Um, not only this, but there's going to be a period in, in 312 where Ptolemy is actually going to come in and take a massive group of Jews from Jerusalem and take them down to Alexandria. And Alexandria is really going to become a hub of Jewish life outside of the Holy Land. And specifically that part of the Jewish uh, that part of the Jews that desires and is okay with the Hellenization, the, the looking more and more Greek. In fact, and here's why I give this to you. Uh, if you ever look at the, the footnotes of your Bible or something, you may see sometimes a all capital LXX. And we mentioned that last spring with the Bibleology series. That's shorthand for the Septuagint, which the Septuagint is simply the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Well, why was that necessary? Because so many Jews became so Hellenized that they spoke Greek and not Hebrew. And it was down in Alexandria that the legend has it, and it did happen in Alexandria, and it was Jewish leaders. The legend is it was 72, and they all went away and translated it. When they all came back, all 72 translations were identical. That's the legend part. But they did come together, the Jewish leaders, and it's in Alexandria they produced the Septuagint, which would have been the Bible of the apostles far more so than the Hebrew scrolls. So anyways, all that side, all that's happening in this time period, but they're going to be down there and they're going to be at this crossroads in that time. And so uh, in this, but here's what they are going to allow. The Ptolemies are going to treat Judea as a temple state. And what that means is that the land, the holy land has been dedicated to a particular God. So there is going to be the ability to practice religious life with some degree of, uh, of freedom. However, the high priest in the eyes of the Ptolemies was the religious and civil authority of the people. So he was their go-to intermediary to keep the peace, to levy the taxes, and to keep everything there. Uh, and so one of the high priests, Onias II, he refused to pay the tax under Ptolemy III. 
Uh, so they Ptolemies kicked him out, and they allowed the Tobiad family, a Tobiad family, to assume the authority. And that's of interest because the Tobiads were a wealthy business family who are not of Levitical descent, so they have no right. And they were one of the people who oppressed Nehemiah back when Nehemiah was doing the walls, back in Nehemiah chapter 2 and chapter 6. So they're going to produce a more Hellenized process. Now, in all of this, this is going to go on, the Ptolemaic period from 320 to 298 BC, so uh, a little over 20 years. And then you're going to have the Syrian period or the Seleucid period. And the Seleucids are very different. They're kind of the polar opposite style of government from the Ptolemics. They're going to be, they're going to have to by default. They can't be a centralized government. That's way too much territory to be a centralized government. They're not going to levy heavy fines and do things that oppress the people because they need the people to like them to follow under their rule. But they're also going to be heavy promoters of Hellenization so that there is a unifying culture that even further. So they're literally the polar opposite. And the Seleucids are going to engage in, are going to, are going to, are going to come in, they're going to, and there's going to be split ideas among the Jews about do we remain under Egyptian rule or Syrian rule. Uh, Onias III supports Egyptian rule. The, the pious house supports Syrian rule. And so all of this is going to come about, and ultimately the Seleucids are going to take control. Uh, now, I don't have a map that necessarily shows. Go to the next map for me just in case, because I'm forgetting exactly... Yeah, this is, this is, to go back to the other one, please. Uh, I don't have one that, sh that updates to show you uh, Israel under, under their rule, but just know that this is going to shift green. It sounds like election night. This is going to shift red or blue. No, not red or blue. It's going to shift green. Uh, it's going to shift green there. And um, in the midst of what's going to bring this on, just, to, just so you understand kind of what's going on to help that, to help that shift, uh, the Ptolemics are going to come under pressure because what's also been going on is there's this other nation not yet at play called Rome who's been fighting the Carthage Wars down here against Hannibal. And they're now going to be pushing up on the West. So it's going to be weaken the Ptolemic Empire. The Seleucids are going to take over. And when the Seleucids take over, their, their initial leader is going to be Antiochus III, Antiochus III, he's going to pull away some of the taxes. He's going to actually assist them in repairing even further the temple from, from damage. And early on under his rule, under the Seleucids, there is peace and prosperity in the land. Um, he's going to reign. He's going to leave two sons. One is Seleucius IV, who's going to become king in 187. He'll rule until his assassination. Uh, he had to pay a lot of taxes to Rome because the other deal is Rome is also going to be pressing this way and they're going to get into fights with the Seleucid Empire up here. And so as they're going to be going back and forth, anyways, Seleucus, all this to say, he gets assassinated and you see his brother Antiochus IV come to the throne. Antiochus IV is an aggressive Hellenizer. He is, going to, he is going to seek a way to unify his kingdom. He wants to do a full invasion of Egypt. He is going to push hard. In fact, he will take on the name Antiochus Epiphanes, which means manifestation of God. Arrogant much? The Jews are going to mock him and call him Antiochus Epimanes, which means Antiochus the madman. You can hear the 
hear the language between. Uh, what he's going to do in coming, in, in doing this, he's going to sell the office of high priest to Jason, the brother of the previous high priest, who's the legitimate high priest. Jason is an avid Hellenist. He's going to be the one to bring Greek festivals and sporting events to Jerusalem. They're going to build a gymnasium in Jerusalem. Now, understand about the gymnasium. You and I hear that and go, oh, it's an it's a, it's a athletic school for boys. Yes, where the boys all ran around in the nude all day and practiced pagan customs. So if, and this is for the Jews. So all of a sudden, as he's bringing these things in, you've got two strong groups of Jews that are also, that are also in two different camps. You've got a camp that's saying, hey, roll with it. These are some good things, even, or they're all good things. And then you've got the other camp, the more conservative side, saying, no, this goes against the law. These are the kind of things that got us in trouble. This is what, and they're going to be over here. And ironically, not, just at, not yet at this point, but those two camps eventually, from a religious standpoint, are going to be your Pharisees and your Sadducees. And that's gonna, this is going to be the early beginnings of those two groups uh, to come in there. And so he's going to put Jason, he's going to, to be brutal in, in bringing about this. And so he thinks he's ready in Tychus IV, Epiphanes, the, 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 the manifestation of God. He's going to come down here to Egypt, and in Egypt, he's going to get hammered. He's going to lose miserably, and rumors are going to come up that he died. So, so Jason, sorry, and I, I failed to give you this, before he does this, Menelaus outbids Jason for the high priest office. I mean, does this stuff not sound like something out of modern day uh, uh, news? I mean, it's just nuts. Uh, Menelaus outbids Jason for the office. He's a non-high priest. So now the, the, the sacred office is completely a political tool. So Jason hears that Antiochus has died and Jason's now taken back power. Well, when Antiochus did not die, he comes back he comes back and squelches the rebellion. He forbids the observance of the Sabbath day and circumcision as, as, um, uh, as, as uh, in some of my notes, he forbids those as, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's right here. Well, let me just, let me just read you straight. When he comes back, he takes Jerusalem, he slaughters men and women and children. He enters the temple, he takes down the holy vessels and offerings, he builds a citadel to rule the western side of Jerusalem. He decrees, this is it is, decrees that observance of the Sabbath, the religious festivals, circumcision, and even owning portions of the Old Testament is a capital offense. Pagan sacrifices become compulsory inside the temple to pagan altars. He's even going to construct a statue of Zeus inside the temple, and he is going to take a cow and slaughter it in the Holy of Holies, which is the abomination of desecration, or a forerunner to, to what, we'll, what we see prophesied later on. We'll come back to that. He is brutal. And it's going to be in this time that an old priest and his sons at a village just north of Jerusalem are going to oppose what he says. And they're going to begin to get a stirring and a following and wage guerrilla warfare 
because they know the landscape better and start to fight back. Now, the, high, the old high priest dies quickly, but his son, his four sons, his son Judas, who earns the nickname Maccabeus, the hammer, and this is the Maccabean revolt. This is the Maccabean revolt, and, and he will go on, and, and he will win impressive victories, and then in December of 1964, or 1964, of 164 B.C., um, in December of 164 BC, he will come back. He will recapture the temple in Jerusalem. He will obliterate the pagan altar. He will cleanse the temple. And this victory in December of 194 is the basis of what Hanukkah celebrates every year. In fact, and it's at the, the festival of Hanukkah that Jesus will make the statement in John chapter 12, I and the, or John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. So Hanukkah is one of the festivals that is not, Hanukkah and Purim are the two festivals of the seven Jewish festivals that are not given by God, but the Jews later added on. This is, and this is the only one not found in the time period of the Old Testament. And so uh, all this to say, they, they begin to win some freedom. His brother, Jonathan, after he dies, will continue leading the charge. After Jonathan dies, his brother, Simon, will continue leading the charge. And all of a sudden, you get to 142 BC, the Seleucid leader Demetrius pulls the taxes off, and for the first time in over 440 years, they're free. For all extent and purposes, the Jews are free. And, and the dynasty that arises is what we call, and in fact, we can go to the other slide. Sorry, I should have told you that. Uh, the Maccabean period is that period of revolts, and this kind of shows you the regions of, of what it looked like. But after they win, it's, the, it's called the Hasmonean dynasty, and this is how far they get the land back to, uh, which, is, which is very similar to Old Testament times. Um, and so in this time, uh, they, he, they're, they're going to be free. They're going to act as allies of Rome. Uh, Simon and his family will eventually be will be his whole family assassinated. Um, then a guy named John Hyrcanus will, 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 come, will come and step up and take lead. Um, and he's going to bring political and economic fortunes, but one of the things is he is a heavy Hellenist. And he's going to continue to bring more and more Greek culture into, into the people. You're going to have a, a period of, of several other uh, several others who follow him, and ultimately what's going to go down for the sake of, of what we're looking at in time tonight, what's going to go down is once you get past, you've got John Hyrcanus, you've got Aristobulus I, you've got Alexander Janius, he's going to die. Um, he's going to be more conservative and have support among the Pharisees who are now a group. They're going to appeal to Seleucid king for help and, and coming against the others who have the Sadducee support. And you're going to have a, a, a brief period of time at the end of the Hasmonean kingdom where the Jews erupt into a civil war. 64 BC, they erupt into a civil war. And unfortunately, it comes at a very poor time because their allies, Rome, are on the march. And the Roman general Pompey is going to come in and conquer Syria to the north. He's going to see the nonsense going on. And in 63 BC, he will march into Jerusalem. He will establish Hyrcanus as the high priest. And the Jews will once again, after, 
after a, a, a basically a 100-year period, the Jews will once again fall under rule from those outside their lands. Now, here's where some of this comes in. Let me give you a snapshot because this does impact names and places uh, for the New Testament. Pompey is one of several generals. He's going to have a lot of success, and he's going to form the triumvirate with who else? Anybody know? Any history buffs? With Crassus and a guy named Julius Caesar. They're going to take out Crassus, but once again, just like under the Greek forehead, now we got three heads. You take out one, you got two. They're going to fight. Pompey, who initially, when he comes down, is going to have support. He's going to have support from a leader. Um, in fact, actually, what I'm asking you to do, this is the Roman Empire, all of the colored areas of what they will become when we get to the end tonight. But I'm actually asking you to go back to the, the last map slide to point out this region, this region of Edomia. Uh, there is a very powerful man who in the midst of the civil war, in the midst of Pompey coming in, his name is Antipur. He figures out how to become essentially a power broker supporting the right people. Of course, Caesar is, uh, assumes all authority. They don't like that. He is assassinated you, uh, by Brutus and Cassius. Mark Antony and Octavian will go on and write, and they'll defeat Brutus and Cassius where? means you don't listen to my sermons. I told you a year ago. I'm kidding. I don't expect you to remember that from a year ago. Uh, they, they, they kill them on the plains of Philippi. And this is where the city of Philippi and the book of Philippians is where they get their Roman, their Roman citizenship from uh, because of that victory. But then even under uh, Antony and Octavian, Antony is going to come down to, to Egypt. Of course, he's going to fall in love with Cleopatra. Uh, he's gonna, and he's going to lose in battle in 31 BC. Octavian will beat him, and then he'll come back to uh, Alexandria, where he and Cleopatra will both commit suicide. And Octavian, the general Octavian, will be very wise and shrewd. He will be just as ambitious as Julius Caesar, but he will do it in a totally different way. And he will, with the approval of the people and gradually being very shrewd, take on all power, and he will become Caesar Augustus the ruler of the known world at the time of Christ's birth. But here's, here's what I want to get to before we mark it to the end. In the midst of all of this, in the midst of all of this, you have this man by the name of Antipur. Antipur is going to help give aid to Julius Caesar when Caesar's trapped in Alexandria by Ptolemaic forces. Caesar will reward Antipur by granting him Roman citizenship. So Antipur is a member of, of these people, the Idumeans, but he's going to now have Roman citizenship because Caesar gives it to him. And he's going to get the title of procurator. And he's going to continue. He's going to install two of his sons as governors over Jerusalem and Galilee. He will pass. And one of those two sons will inherit his shrewdness for being a power broker to the Romans. And that son's name is Herod who will go on to be known as Herod the Great. 
Herod the Great will face some different aspects. Um, he'll be besieged in Jerusalem. He'll escape. Uh, this, is, this is during uh, one, of those, uh, one of those battles. His brother will be captured and commit suicide. He will be besieged in Jerusalem. Then his family will escape to Masada. If you've ever been to the Holy Land, Masada is that unbelievable fort that's built up on a plateau that there, there, there's only one way up, and it's this little... Well, I guess there's two ways up now. You can take the cable car. That wasn't there back then. Or you can take the narrow little path up. Uh, and you can see the remains of where the Romans would eventually build their, that's where the last stand of the, the Jewish uh, people were, was at. But they're going to escape to Masada. He'll leave his family there. He'll go with the support of Mark Antony and Octavian. He'll plead his case in Rome before the Senate. The Senate will confirm him as king of the Jews. They'll give him the old territories of his brother, uh, some, several of these territories. And he will continue to win favor with the Romans. And ultimately, in 37 BC, he'll put to death some of the insurrectionists and Sadducean supporters. And once he does that, he'll inherit several of the other surrounding lands. And he is now recognized by Rome as the regional ruler over all of, uh, all of the Holy Land. And so when you come and you get to the place of... Um, of Luke, especially Luke chapter two, when you come to Luke chapter two and it all of a sudden starts spitting out names that Jesus in, this, in the days of, of, of Caesar Augustus and in the reign of Herod the Great, all of a sudden you've now seen the major history that's brought you up to that point. And you see in all of that history, you get a picture in perspective for why. Why was it so easy for the Jews of Jesus's day to have looked for a Messiah to be this political king who would bring freedom. Well, you can understand a little better how they got there after all that 450 years. And essentially, let's go back even further, 605 BC. Let's go back even before that. Let's go back to a thousand years prior was the last time the entire Jewish nation was unified as one kingdom. And it's a series of split kingdom, and, and then you have some rule for a little bit, and, and, and then all of a sudden for the last essentially 600 years by the time Jesus shows up as, as a baby, you have nothing but occupation, and that will do something. And all of a sudden you understand why, why the Jews were quick to go after. You think of some of the groups that will arise. We've mentioned the Pharisees, more conservative. They're the ones with the law and all the laws upon the laws. The Sadducees, they're a higher aristocratic class that are very Hellenized, and they're the ones that don't believe in bodily resurrection because that just, that's just silly talk. That's just mythology. Sound familiar to stuff today? I mean, like they're the liberals, they're the conservatives, they're that. I mean, that's all that was going on in their life. You've got groups like the zealots who are actively trying to overthrow the Romans, who want to have freedom, who want to have all of this. You see this, but here's what, here's where I want to end with our last couple of minutes tonight. Before, before I know those of you got choir and about seven minutes. If you got your Bibles, go with me to Daniel chapter seven. Go with me to Daniel chapter 7. You'll remember Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about this statue that has a gold head and, and different and all this. And, and Daniel interprets it and says, you know, this is the Babylonian Empire. This is the Persian Median Empire. This is the Greek Empire. This is the Roman Empire. But, but I want you to look even more specific in here. Daniel 7, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay in his bed. And then he wrote the dream down and told the following summary of it. He said, I was looking on my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heavens were stirring up a great sea and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was a lion, but had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground 
and set on two feet like a man. Now pause for a second. Lion with wings is a well-known symbol of the Babylonian empire. And I watched until it was plucked. Well, because the Babylonian empire fell and in if it said on two feet like a man, the human mind was also given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And they said to it, uh, arise, devour much meat. Well, why was a bear, why is a bear standing on its side on two legs? Because it was not just the Persian empire, it was the Persian Median empire. It was two different groups that comprised one empire. After this, I kept looking, behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, but also had four heads and dominion was given to it. A leopard, a beast of speed, given wings to enable it to go faster, representing the Greek empire that moved with swiftness, but the leopard had four heads because Alexander dies and it split into four kingdoms and dominion was given to it, Hellenization. After this, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful, terrible, and extremely strong, had large iron in its teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. Well, who is, what is the Roman Empire and Caesar Augustus brings? It brings what we commonly know as the Pax Romana all over the Mediterranean, complete and total peace. One government, one rule, one country. And then it says this in verse nine, I kept looking at all of this until, oh, sorry. And while I was thinking, um, and it had 10 horns, uh, let's see. I was thinking about the horns, behold, another horn, a little one came up among them and those three previous horns were plucked out before it and behold, the horn possessing eyes like a human and a mouth uttering great boasts. Many commonly take that to be referring to the antichrist, the one who is yet to come. And I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat. His garment was white as snow. The hair of his head was pure like wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from him. Thousands upon thousands were serving him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court convened, the books were opened. And then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given to a burning fire. As for the rest of beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking at the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one came like a man was coming. He was coming up like the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, honor, and a kingdom so that all the peoples, nations, and populations of all languages might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And he goes on to unpack, by the way, my interpretations I just gave you all come from, he goes on to unpack in the vision interpretive of what's going on and who those people are. If we, if we had more time, we'd see in the vision of the ram and the goat. I encourage you to go back and read it. The ram and the goat, the, the ram describes the Persian Median empire. The goat describes the Greek empire where four horns arise and three of them get cut down and one of them causes, and you're gonna see, if you read that, you're gonna see a picture of everything we just talked about, of Alexander dying, of four kingdoms, of eventually there being a battle between two of the kingdoms, which is expounded even further in Daniel chapter 10, the battle of the south and the north. And if time permitted, uh, uh, sorry, Daniel chapter 11 of conflicts to come, if time permitted, we, we could go look at it. It's, it's remarkable, but it's going to talk about a small horn, which is going to go in and say that he's Lord and commit a sacrifice in the temple. It's referring to Antiochus Epiphanes. 
Now, here's my point in reading all of this, church family. Because on one hand, I just, tonight really is kind of a history lesson. I need to bridge the gap and help understand where, where, what happens in those in-between years because that's where some of the major players of the New Testament, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, worship at the synagogue, um, all these different things have their, have their origin, not in the Old Testament, but in, in this in-between period. But I also come back to this to tell you, here's Daniel under Babylonian rule, 50, 60 years after he was plucked from his family, from his homeland. He's endured, he's, he's watched, he's seen God protect him. Here he has this vision and in this vision, he sees everything we talked about tonight covered as well as that which the word says is coming. And hundreds of years before any of it happens, he prophesies all of it to a T. Why? Not because he had insight, but because the one who sits on the throne of heaven, who is actively sovereign and in control of history, gave him knowledge of what was coming. And that's why, did you see, the Ancient of Days sits on his throne. That final beast that boasts and that brings a destruction unlike anything else, it's killed. And the Son of Man sits on his throne in his kingdom. His kingdom is one, and it will never be destroyed. And that ought to bring in the midst of what is a crazy period of time in our life and our history as we watch things happening all over the place, as questions raise, as things go on. Listen, God being sovereign over history doesn't mean his people don't suffer. But God being sovereign over history means that everything he promises is absolutely true. That the mercy will be new tomorrow morning if suffering comes, it'll equally be new tomorrow morning if prosperity comes that his grace will be sufficient, that his power will be perfected in weakness, and that he is coming back. And we had better, if we really know him, square our lives with the fact that he is returning, and that will be our eternal home, not this world. So may we honor and love him now. He is faithful and true. I mean, it's remarkable. I I wish we had more time, but like I said, some of the stuff hit me today as I was going through it. So... um, I'd encourage you to go read some of that in Daniel. And if you need help, I can recommend some commentaries to to walk through. But it's just remarkable to see that whole period of history that's not mentioned in the Old Testament. It actually kind of is because it's all prophesied with major implications of what's coming. Man, our God is good. May we be amazed. Let me pray and and we'll be done. Uh, Father, thank you so much. What seems like absolute chaos to us what was chaotic for hundreds of years in Jerusalem, you already knew. And all of it, God, you were working behind the scenes. You were allowing, you were preserving. All of it. So that in the fullness of time, one from the tribe of Judah, from the lineage of David, would birth forth onto the scene just as you promised. And Jesus, just as you fulfilled every prophecy that pointed to your coming, your living, your dying, your rising, so you will fulfill your word in every prophecy that speaks of your returning. May we be people who live in light of that reality.
Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.